in Genesis 1 and 2, you have a presentation of creation before the fall. The fall occurs in Genesis 3. So there's no sin in Genesis 1 and 2. It's the only two chapters in the Old Testament without sin. And then in Revelation 21 and 22, you have the only two chapters in the New Testament that are without sin. Because the fall has been erased in Revelation 20. So Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 are the only four chapters in the entire Bible where there's no curse, there's no fall, there's no sin. And they mirror one another. And here is the awesome truth about those four chapters. The entire Bible is the unfolding drama of all the themes that are in Genesis 1 and 2. And you can trace them through all the Old Testament. And then you can trace them through all the New Testament until their climax, their consummation in Revelation 21 and 22. Your Bible really is not a conglomeration of stories and laws and rules and propositions. There's really one dominating theme that runs like a golden thread through Genesis all the way to Revelation, all the way to the genuine leather. And that theme can be put in three words. So, if you would, turn to Ephesians. We're going to look at a few passages in Ephesians. And this is going to be the introduction to the message tonight. Ephesians chapter 3, looking at verse 11. This was in accordance with, and here are the three words, the eternal purpose. I would like you to circle or underline those three words. The eternal purpose. Which He, the Father, carried out or formed. And formed, I believe, is a better translation. Formed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The governing theme of the Bible is God's eternal purpose. And yet, we live in a day where we hardly ever hear anybody talk about it. Yet it is the dominating theme of Scripture. Not only that, but it is the entire reason why God created in the first place. Not only that, the eternal purpose of God is the only reason and the only justification why any church should exist. To fulfill God's eternal purpose. There is no other biblical reason for it. And the reason why you're in this room, whether you realize it or not, is to discover or begin to discover the eternal purpose. Because it's all tied up in this thing called the church. Now let's look at a couple of passages in Ephesians. We're going to look at two of them. Turn to chapter 5 of Ephesians. And let me just say this, that Ephesians is the high watermark of divine revelation. The biblical revelation does not get higher, deeper, or richer than what is in Ephesians. And I believe that when Paul preached to a young church, when he planted a church, what we have in Ephesians is basically what he presented first. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice the church is called a her. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he, Christ, might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she would be holy and blameless. 
So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. And I would like you to circle the word wife. You can also use the word bride if you wish. Join to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I am not speaking of Adam and Eve, which I just quoted, Paul quoted Genesis, speaking of Adam and Eve. I'm not speaking of Adam and Eve. I am speaking about Christ and the church. I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. All right, now turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 13. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, and the both groups here are Jew and Gentile, both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity or the hostility which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, one new humanity, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body. And I'd like you to circle the word body. In one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints or the holy ones and are of God's household. I'd like you to circle the word household. Some translations have family. And that's a better translation. God's family. His household. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling. And I would like you to circle the word dwelling. That can also be translated house into a dwelling or a house of God in the Spirit. Alright. We have four terms in those passages and all of them have to do with God's eternal purpose. We have a bride or a wife. We have a house or dwelling. We have a body. And we have a family. Now, how many of you here have ever watched any of the Star Wars episodes? Raise your hand if you have watched Star Wars. Okay. I'm going to tell you how bad Star Wars is and why you're a sinner if you watch Star Wars. No, that's not. I can say No. Um, in May of 1977, Star Wars hit the American cinemas. Do you know which one began first? Which episode? Four. That was the first one we ever saw was episode four. It's called A New Hope. In 1980, they released episode five. The Empire Strikes Back. In 1983, they released episode six. Return of the Jedi. And then... Years passed, and in 1999, they released Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. In 2002, they released Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. And in 2005, they released Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. So Star Wars came out, 4, 5, 6, and you had to wait many years... And then you got to see one, two, three. 
And here's the point. You really didn't understand what was going on fully. You didn't understand the big picture until you saw 1, 2, and 3. Unless you read the books, of course. But I'm just talking about movie watchers. Well, brothers and sisters, it's the same way with how we've been trained to understand God's purpose. You ask most Christians today and you say, what is God's central primary purpose, His highest purpose? What is the thing that beats in His heart that He wants more than anything else? The answer is to save the lost. Everything comes back to that. Or to make the world a better place. To improve this world. We Christians have an obligation to do that. Well, dear brothers and sisters, neither of those is God's eternal purpose. But the reason why we think they are God's eternal purpose is because we start the story in the wrong place. Just like Star Wars started 4, 5, 6, and it wasn't until later that we got to see what 1, 2, and 3 was, we start the story in Genesis 3 with the fall of humans. And that's where we begin. Everything. We are fallen. Humans are fallen. we got to get them back into fellowship with God. The world is cursed. we got to remove the curse and make it a better place to live. But dear brothers and sisters, the story doesn't begin in Genesis 3. It begins in Genesis 1 and 2. Before the fall. God had a purpose for human beings. There was something in His heart that provoked Him to create this earth. And Adam and Eve and humanity. That had nothing to do with the fall. That had nothing to do with the curse. Because He created it not in need of salvation. He created humans not fallen. Are you with me? There was something else He wanted. And here's the point. He's never let go of it. Never. Now someone in this room just heard me say, salvation of the lost is not important. And trying to make the world a better place is not important. I never said that. I said it's not God's highest intention. It's not His eternal purpose. It's not why He created Okay, are you with me? Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. And we're going to pick up four themes that you can trace from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And they are, you circled them in Ephesians. Because Ephesians is all about the eternal purpose. And it begins not with human need, but with God's desire and intention. You see, the salvation of the lost, guess who's at the center of that? Human beings. We need salvation. We don't want to go to hell, we want to go to heaven. Who's at the center? Humans. Man, woman. Making the world a better place. For what reason? So that it's a better place to live. Who's at the center? You and me. But there's something that is for God. There's something that is by God. There's something that is through God. And it's not for us, it's for Him. But we're involved in it, which is awesome. But it's not for us, folks. And so Ephesians, read Ephesians 1. There's nothing there really about human need. It's all about God's intention before time. There was something beating in his heart that he wanted. And it comes down to these four things. A bride. A house. A body. A family. So, I'm going to take you on a tour very quickly. It's very incomplete. Just to give you a glimpse of his eternal purpose. Which is by him, through him, and to him. God, before time, wanted a bride for His Son. He wanted a counterpart for His Son. He wanted a creature that would be the object of His outpoured passion in love. 
And he desired that outpoured passion and love to be dispensed into a creature that did not yet exist and that would return that love back to him. And every romance that human beings have created in their imagination and put on film and in books is a reflection, a pale echo of the romance that was in the heart of God from before time. He invented romance. He didn't just say to himself, I'm going to create this whole thing called man and woman and romance and marriage. No, it was a reflection that came out of him. He's the one that created it. And it expresses something in the heart of God. So let's take a look real quickly. I'm going to try to speak as though you're watching a movie. So I want your imagination to work here. And I would like you to go back to the Bible and check it out. The Bible opens with a man who's alone. And God the Father says, It is not good for man to be alone. I will create for him a counterpart. And so he puts Adam in a deep sleep. A deep sleep. And God pulls out of his side, out of Adam's side, another creature. This creature was in Adam when he walked this earth alone. She was always in him. But there came a moment where Adam went into a deep sleep and God took another being out of the first man and it was a woman. And this is before the fall. And she came out with the same DNA as Adam had. She was much more beautiful than Adam though. And she was holy and without blemish. She had no spot and no wrinkle. And so there was a woman inside the man from the beginning. And God pulled the woman out. And then the man and the woman became one. And so your Bible opens up with a marriage. And two becoming one. Now as you read the scripture, you find that this thing called marriage, a bridegroom and a bride, keeps reappearing. There's this man named Abraham. And he finds a woman named Sarah and they get married and they're very old. Very old. And one day God does something miraculous. He restores Sarah who's way past childbearing age he restores her to her youth and she can bear kids now and I think that he restored her youthful beauty too because when they were over there in Egypt one of those old boys there wanted her to be in his harem now I can't really envision an old decrepit woman being desirous to be in somebody's harem no I think Abraham woke up one morning and pulled back the curtains and says what in the world is this who is sleeping in my bed God restored to her the glory of her youth is restoration of a bride and you read on and you find that Isaac is in need of a wife. It is not good for man to be alone. So his father Abraham sends a servant who is never named in the story. And the servant travels to where Abraham's people are, his kinfolk, and he goes to a well and he finds a beautiful woman named Rebecca at a well. And the servant talks to her. And all the servant does, he doesn't speak of himself. He speaks of Isaac. Isaac, the son of promise. Isaac, the only begotten. Isaac, the one who was to be sacrificed. And the servant brings her back. And him, who she had never seen, believed and actually fell in love with by the testimony of the servant who never spoke of himself but always spoke of Isaac and Abraham they saw one another and they fell in love with each other and she was his bride, his wife and then you have Jacob 
Jacob is the son of Isaac and he finds himself in a well and it's noon. It's the high moment of the day and a beautiful young woman named Rachel appears. And there's a conversation. And he loves her. Falls in love with her and she becomes his wife. And Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons which become the 12 tribes of Israel and through various circumstances they're taken into Egypt where they're in bondage. They leave Egypt. They spend 40 years in the wilderness and then they go into the land, the land of milk and honey, flowing with milk and honey, the land that God promised. And the land, there is a name in the Old Testament given to the land, it's Beulah land, and God says, you, Israel, are married to the land. The land is your wife. The land with all of the riches. The land that is abundant. The land that produces all manner of fruit and minerals. And then we keep reading the Old Testament. We keep seeing these brides appear, even in the book of Psalms. And even in the book of Proverbs, at the very end. Chapter 31, the virtuous woman. He's presented to us. It's an incredible woman. And she's married. She's a bride. And then the Song of Solomon. If you ever read that, we're talking high-octane love story here. And it's the story of a poor, lowly maiden who has been captured in heart by a lofty, rich monarch. And they fall deeply in love. And the passion is relentless between the two. And the language in the Hebrew is graphic about their love and their romance to one another. We keep seeing these brides appearing in the Old Testament, starting from Eve and all. And then the New Testament opens and the reality appears. All the Old Testament was full of pictures and shadows and types. It's, the Old Testament is God's picture book. But now the reality comes. And when you read the book of John, which is the opening, chronologically, of the life of Jesus Christ, the first thing you notice is that he is being announced by John the Baptist as the bridegroom appearing to be introduced to his bride. The real bridegroom appears and he's after a bride and the friend of the bridegroom is there to meet or to cause the two to meet. And then you open up chapter 2 of John and there's a wedding. And Jesus is at the wedding. And he plays a major role there. And when you look at John 1 and 2 real carefully, you find that it's very similar to Genesis 1 and 2. It opens up with the same words, in the beginning. And as you read Genesis 1 and 2 carefully, and you read John 1 and 2 carefully, it has the same rhythm. And the next day, this happened. And the next day, this happened. And the next day, this happened. That's John 1 and 2. Sounds very much like Genesis 1 and 2. And the first day, and the second day, and the third day. Hmm, this is interesting. What you have in John is the new Genesis. And then you have Jesus saying over and over again that He is the Son of Man. Interesting. The Son of Man shall do this. The Son of Man says this. The Son of Man will do this. And the word man is Adam. He is the Son of Adam. And when you read further in the New Testament, you find that Paul calls Jesus the last Adam, the second man. And he says in Romans 5, Adam was a shadow, an image, a figure of the one who was to come, which is Christ. Jesus Christ, your Lord, was the new Adam. But that's not all. He was also the new Jacob the new Israel very early in his life he was taken to Egypt and he was set free from Egypt his parents were able to bring him out of Egypt and the prophet is quoted by Matthew saying out of Egypt have I called my son referring to Jesus but that came from the book of Hosea referring to Israel 
So Jesus is the new Israel. He starts His ministry after He's in the wilderness for 40 days. Why 40 days? Because it matches the 40 years that Israel was in the wilderness. He chooses 12 disciples. Why 12 disciples? Because there were 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes. He's the new Israel. He's the real Jacob. And then in John 4, he's sitting on a hot day at noon, right in front of Jacob's well. And a woman shows up. And Jesus breaks every custom of the day. He talks to a woman in public. And that was a no-no if you were a Jewish man in the first century. But that's not all. Not only is she a woman, she's a Samaritan. And Jews are not even to look at Samaritans. Now what's a Samaritan? It is a person who is half Jew and half Gentile. Listen, a Samaritan is a Jew and a Gentile in the same body. Okay, there's one person who's getting this. And he is talking to her. Not only is she a woman, not only is she a Samaritan, but she is a divorcee. And not only once divorced, five times. And not only that, she's living with a sixth man who's not her husband. And here he is the seventh man in her life and he's the new Jacob and he's meeting her at Jacob's well just like Jacob and was her bridegroom and then he shares with her some of the greatest things that a human being can know about God he shares it with this woman and then she takes him back to her town in Samaria and he eats their food uses their utensils and breaks every custom and every law that the Jews had because you were not to eat with the Samaritans, let alone talk to them. Who is this woman? Here he is, the Holy Son of God. Spotless. Perfect. Without sin. Talking, fellowshipping, and offering salvation to a Samaritan, a five-time divorcee who's living in sin. Brothers and sisters, open your eyes. That woman is you and me. What a Lord. What a Christ. Wow. If there's hope for her, thank God there's hope for me and you. Jew and Gentile in one body a picture of the bride of Christ and then the new Adam the second Adam is taken up a hill and God the Father puts him into the deepest sleep of all death and there he is the last Adam the second man hanging on a cross dead in a deep sleep and soldiers pierce his side. His side. And out of his side pours forth water and blood. The blood to forgive every sin ever committed. And the water which speaks of the life of God to impart life into the dead. And bring them to life. And brothers and sisters... This new Adam, this second Adam, rose again. And in the city of Jerusalem, out of the wounded side came forth the real Eve. That wounded side was the womb of the bride of Jesus Christ. And as he said in John 12... Except a grain of wheat fall into the ground, it abides alone. But if it dies, it will come up 
and bear many grains. And when God the Father in Genesis 2 said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will create for him a counterpart. Hear that again. It is not good for my son to be alone. I will create for him a counterpart. And brothers and sisters, you are looking at the counterpart of Jesus Christ in this room. Jew and Gentile. Bride of Christ. And here is the kicker. Because of the water and the blood, in the eyes of God, you and I are holy, without spot, without wrinkle, and without blemish. Because just as Eve was in Adam when he walked this earth alone, you and I were in Christ before the foundation of the world, holy and without blame. And I just quoted Ephesians chapter 1. The stories of all the brides in the Old Testament, beginning with Eve, was just a picture, a pale image of the reality. God's eternal purpose is to have a bride for His Son. One who would receive the superabundance of His outrageous, fervent, unconditional, unexplainable love. And return that love back to Him. We won't get to the end of the story yet. Let's shift over to the second aspect of God's eternal purpose. A house. From before time, God wanted a dwelling place. You can think of Him as being homeless. And us mortals, I mean, that's hard to grasp. How can God be homeless? But you know, if you read your Old Testament carefully... Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? We have a homeless God wanting to dwell and be at home. And this was the provocation of creation. And what happens here is we have in Genesis 1 and 2 a garden. And this garden really is, it's like a lumber yard. There are building materials in this garden. What, what are the building materials? Well, there's, there's gold. There's something called pearl. And there are all manner of precious stones. Onyx. And when God took Eve out of Adam, the Hebrew says, and God built a woman out of Adam. He uses the word built. And God is living in the garden while He's also living in the heavens. He comes and visits the garden. He walks with Adam in the cool of the day. You remember that? So the garden, it has this other mysterious thing in the middle of it called the tree of life, which is not natural. It's, it comes from another place, from the heavens. It's the tree of life. Not human life. God's life is in that tree. So the, the garden is kind of an interface between the heavenly and visible realm and the physical visible realm. It's a cross mingling between God's space and man's space. Between the divine and the human. And God is living there. And His objective is for the garden to fill the whole earth and for Him to have a dwelling place. Well, the fall occurs and the garden is closed off. But God has not given up His purpose to have a dwelling place. And so you begin to read the Old Testament story, and it's very chronological, and now you see God trying to recover what He lost in the garden, and He begins with Noah. And Noah builds altars and tents. He lives in tents, and He builds altars. And this is pronounced in His life. He's a man of the altar and the tent. Now the altar speaks of self-denial. I'm not here for myself. I'm here for God's purpose. That's what the altar is. You lay your life down. You sacrifice yourself for God's interest. But the tent refers to this earth is not my home. I am not attached to any place in this world. I can move anywhere I want. I am mobile. That's what the tent represents. Noah is a man of the altar and the tent. Abraham is a man of the altar and the tent. Isaac is a man of the altar and the tent. Jacob is a man of the altar and the tent. They build altars, self-sacrifice, 
I'm here for your purpose, Lord, not mine. And they live in tents. I'm not detached to this planet. I'll go wherever you want me to go. And Jacob, we find, he's running away from his brother. He wants to kill him, basically. For a pretty good reason. And he's, he's homeless. Jacob's homeless. He's running. And he falls asleep one night. And he grabs a soft stone and uses it as a pillow, which I, which I never understood. But he puts his head on the pillow, falls asleep, and he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees not a ladder, but a stairway. It's what it is in the Hebrew. Stairway to Heaven fans, Led Zeppelin fans, this is the real stairway to heaven. It goes from where he's sleeping to the heavens, and the heavens open, and God speaks, and there's angels moving up and down that stairway. And Jacob wakes up and he says, This is the house of God. I will call it Bethel. And he takes the stone that he slept on and he pours oil on it and anoints the stone. What is this? God is saying, I want the garden back. I want my house on the earth. When the fall happened, I had a retreat into heaven, but I want it back. And here is the place where there's commerce between heaven and earth. Angels ascending and descending on this ladder. And God having interaction with Jacob. And Jacob realizes intuitively this is the house of the living God. Well, you go through the story more and you find that Moses is taken up into a mountain and God rips the heavens open and he sees this pattern. And the pattern is to create something called the tabernacle. And do you know what the tabernacle is? It is an enlarged altar and tent. The first thing you meet is a big altar and then it's a big tent. And it's called the house of God. For God comes down in one part of that tabernacle in the Holy of Holies and He manifests His glory there. But then He goes back. And then Solomon comes along and he makes the house of God even bigger. He builds this thing called the temple. And guess what the temple is made out of? Gold, precious stone, not pearl, but silver. And it's interesting to ask the question, why silver and not pearl? Because the building materials in Genesis 1 and 2 are gold, pearl, and precious stone. And the answer is that silver always speaks in the Bible of redemption. I don't have time to prove this to you, but if you look at silver and, and, and examine it, it's always related to redemption. Well, before the fall, you didn't need silver. You don't need redemption. But after the fall, you need it. So silver replaces pearl. And there are images of the garden all in the temple. There's palm trees. There's flowers. There's pomegranates. It's beckoning us back to that time where the garden is the interface between God and humans. The intersection where man's space and God's space meet and connect. And God would show up in the temple. In fact, when it was dedicated, fire from heaven fell on the temple. So... The house of God in picture form is getting bigger and bigger. An altar and a tent. The tabernacle of Moses. The temple of Solomon. Well, tragedy strikes. The temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. They take God's people to Babylon. They stay there for 70 years. And they can't worship God, so they build synagogues. Which is their ingenious attempt to replicate the temple. But God will not go in a synagogue. He will not appear in a synagogue. Seventy years passes, and the Lord opens the door for Israel, who's been taken captive in Babylon for seventy years, to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And here's the tragic fact. Only two percent are willing to go. The rest of them are very comfortable in Babylon. They've built homes, they've started businesses, and guess what? They can even worship God in their man-made synagogue. God still loves them, they're still His people, but His best and highest is to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And Ezekiel, during this time, gets a vision. And he sees an enlarged temple. It's even bigger than the temple of Solomon. It's huge. 
What's happening here? God is saying, I want my dwelling place to fill the earth. It's getting bigger and bigger. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Haggai, a prophet of the Old Testament time, makes this statement. The glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former house. In other words, this new rebuilt temple will be greater in glory than Solomon's temple. And guess what? It wasn't. But Haggai was speaking of a different temple. And now the New Testament opens. We have the reality again. And Jesus Christ, your Lord, appears. And in the opening chapter of John, John 1, it says, And the Word was with God from the beginning, and the Word took on flesh and tabernacled among us. The real tabernacle showed up. God dwelt in Christ. He was the house of God. And in John chapter 2, he actually says, I am the temple. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it back up. And he was speaking of his own body. They thought he was talking about that rebuilt temple over there, brick and mortar. No, he was talking about himself. He was the temple of God. And when he meets Nathaniel in John 1, he's sitting by a tree. Nathaniel is. Nathaniel has a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus says... Nathaniel, you are going to see the Son of Man with angels ascending and descending upon him, going up and down. He was telling him, I am the reality of Jacob's ladder. I'm the real stairway to heaven. I connect the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. I am the house of God. That's who I am. And then something happens. He is put to death. But three days later, he raises the temple up again. But this time, it's a little bit bigger. For 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God descends in the city of Jerusalem to 120 followers of Christ who now have his own life in them. And you know what happens? Tongues of fire fall on their heads. What does that mean? They are the temple of God, for the fire of God fell on the temple of Solomon. And here was the real temple. And when he said, three days you will put me to death, but three days I will raise it up. Brothers and sisters, the house of God just got bigger. And all who are part of Christ are now part of the dwelling of God himself. And that's why Peter says, we are living stones. What's a living stone? It's when oil is poured on a dead stone. Remember Jacob? And it becomes living. But see, brothers and sisters, that's not the point. God is not interested in many, many living stones being made. He wants the stones, and I'll quote Paul and Peter, to be built together in every city on the planet to become the dwelling of God Himself. You see, the Lord is not interested in visiting. I grew up in a movement and it was all about the visitation of God, you know. Let's pray for a visitation. Well, guess what? He didn't want to visit. He wants to dwell. He wants to live and move and have His being and express Himself. He wants a house that He can live in and feel at home. And that means he's got to call the shots. He has to be master of the house. Not just a visitor, not just a guest of honor, but the owner of the home. And brothers and sisters, what we have today on the planet is many living stones. We have many living stones sitting in this room. Oil was poured upon you. You were blasted out of the quarry. A dead rock. And the Spirit of God came and poured His oil on you. became a living stone. But you know what? God is not interested in an assembly line of living stones. In every city, He wants those stones to be built together. 1 Peter chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Built together. And that's what they were in the first century. They were built together to form the Lord's house where He can lay His head. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Jacob laid his head on that pillow. He's looking for a place to rest. 
place to be home. That's what the church is. That's what He's wanted. You see, and we've made it all about living stones. Let's go out and get those stones, those dead stones and pour oil on them. Let's get them all saved. Well, great. Go ahead and do it. But that's not what God wants. He wants the stones to be built together in every city for a house where He can dwell. You understand? Isn't that awesome? (laughs) And what is the house of God? It's where heaven and earth meet. And that's what a real expression of the church is. It's the boundary between heaven and earth. And God is really, truly in the midst of that people. And He expresses Himself. And He reveals Himself. I get passionate. I'm not upset. I'm passionate, okay? This is awesome to me. The house of the living God. Why did God create? He wants a house to dwell in. Well, that's the second theme. He also wants a body through which to express Himself. A body. What's the purpose of a body, a physical body? It's to express the life that's in it and make it visible. If you didn't have a body, you would have no expression of your personality and your life. And so God created Adam, who was a body, a physical body. And God had a task, and that was that this creature called Adam, and of course his wife, do two things in the earth. Bear my image and have dominion over the earth. Subdue the creeping things. What are the creeping things? Well, that's the serpent. Bear my image. Make visible me, the eternal God who is invisible. Make me seen. I want a body through which to express myself for all creatures that I create to see and behold. And if you move through the story, God selects a people through the loins of Abraham called Israel. And you know what they are? They're called a kingdom of priests. A priest bears the image of God. A king subdues the earth and rules. They were to be a kingdom of priests, but they failed the task. And Jesus Christ comes to earth, God in flesh, and Hebrews says, A body you have prepared for me. A body. And Jesus Christ was the image of the invisible God. For He said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Paul calls Him the image of God. All throughout Scripture. He bears the image of God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus of Nazareth. That's what God is like. There is no God outside of Jesus of Nazareth. That's who God is. But He also subdues the earth. He has power over nature. He can calm the storm. And He also tramples over the creeping things. He casts out demons. And this Jesus was put to death. Yes, to forgive the sins of the world. But that's not all. To increase His body. And the body of Christ was born, having His own life. And that body is a multi-membered creature. And you know what the goal of the body of Christ is? And it's literally His body on the earth. It is to... Bear the image of the one who dwells it in the earth. Do you want to see what God is like? Look at Jesus of Nazareth. Well, he's gone now. He's in spirit, though. You want to see what God is like? Look at the body of Christ when it is functioning properly in a given place. And I mean functioning properly. All the members are working together. You will see Christ on the earth. And in seeing Christ, you will see God. God visible. He wanted His image to be seen. And His authority to be exercised. And that has been His eternal purpose. From the beginning. But that's not all. The fourth image is a family. Why did God create He wanted to have kids. Where did the idea of the family come from? Hello? (laughs) Ever think about this? Where did this idea of marriage come from? Husband and wife, family, 
sons and daughters. Why sons and It is a reflection of something that's in the eternal heart of God from before time. He wanted to have kids. You see, God the Father eternally has had an only begotten Son. He begot His Son before time, outside of time. Jesus, God of God, light of light, has always existed. But He's the only begotten Son. The only begotten Son. Just let that marinate for a second. His only begotten Son. So God creates man, an image of His own Son. And He says, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth with My image. Adam is actually called the Son of God in the Bible. It's in the Gospels. Read it. The Son of Adam, Adam the Son of God. Israel was to be the family of God on the earth. Abraham was given the promise, through you, through your loins, you will bless all the nations. You will show them what I'm like. But Israel failed because they took the blessing and they kept it to themselves. And they didn't let it go out to others. They put mirrors around themselves and looked at one another and enjoyed the blessing and did not bless all the nations as they were called to do. And then Jesus appears on the earth. The reality has come. And He does something profoundly radical. He is the first one to call God His Father. And that got Him in hot water too with the religious leaders. God is your Father? You're making yourself one with God? The only begotten. The Son of God. But God wanted to have kids. He wanted a family. So Jesus is put to death. The one grain falls into the ground. And three days later, he's resurrected. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, He is a life-giving spirit. He's moving about on the earth in his resurrected state. And ten of his disciples who had lived with him for three and a half years are in a sealed room. And Jesus penetrates the walls of that room and appears. Peace be with you. The first person that saw him in his resurrected state was Mary. And you know what he said? Now he's a life-giving spirit and he makes this incredible statement. Go tell my brethren. My brethren, not my disciples, not my servants. Go tell my brethren that I am alive. And he penetrates that sealed room and he takes a breath. But it's not on this earth. It's in the heavens. And he breathes into those ten men his own life. And brothers and sisters, listen. The only begotten Son of God is now the firstborn among many brothers. And God now has a family. And then he breathes into some women. And now we have the sons and daughters of God. And brothers and sisters, they're not just family because they're related by divine life. Yes, that's true. But in the city of Jerusalem, when the church was born, they lived as an extended household. They took care of each other. They married one another. They buried one another. They lived for one another and to express their Lord and to have fellowship with their father and their elder brother, their Lord Jesus Christ. And that family was also a body. A new humanity where there was no Jew and no Gentile. Where there was no rich and no poor where there was no slave and no free where there was no male and no female all earthly distinctions that separated human beings were abolished and they saw one another with the eyes of God and they were one new humanity on the earth and we are very close to Washington DC and there are people in Washington DC who are trying to make this world a utopia they're trying to use laws and legislations and politics to create a better world 
To create, as it were, the kingdom of God. And Christians on the left and Christians on the right are all coming to Caesar's table and using the power of the emperor and saying, this is what we need to have the kingdom of God. But brothers and sisters, the first century Christians understood they were not of this world. They were a colony of heaven on this earth. They were a new polis, a new city, the city of God. And it was countercultural. And they lived as a community, as a real family. And they took care of each other. And there was peace in that community, in that family. And there was justice in that community and in that family. And there was liberty in that community and in that family. And it was a microcosm of the kingdom of God in the midst of a fallen world. And people looked at that and they could see that's the kingdom of God. It's on this earth. Heaven and earth are joined in the midst of these people. And they're not using the power of Caesar. They are the kingdom of God on earth. I'm excited about that. That's why I'm excited. That's awesome. The world had never seen Jews and Gentiles embrace and love one another. Never seen it. Centuries of hostility and hatred. And here was a people where Jews and Gentiles were walking into the marketplace arm in arm, singing together. And they looked and they said, What is this? It's because they are following the Lord of this world who has made the new emperor and he is a new kind of human. He is divine and he is what a real human is. And they were living by his life. And that takes us to the end of the story in Revelation 21 and 22. And out of the heavens we see a building. What is it? It's the dwelling of God. And man, humanity, and God are now dwelling together. And it's not just a building, but it's a garden. For the tree of life is there and the flowing river. And you know what the tree of life is? Your Lord Jesus Christ is the tree of life. He that eats me shall live by me. I am the vine tree. You are the branches. And there's a flowing river. You know what that river is? It's Christ. And that dwelling of God, that city of God, is also a bride who loves her bridegroom because he first loved her. And we love him because he first loved us. And that new Jerusalem is not only the house of God, it's not only the bride of Christ, it's the family of God and it's a living organism. Brothers and sisters, it's a picture of the church. And God's eternal purpose is to have on every city of this planet, of this fallen, corrupt, pitiful, dirty world, a microcosm, a miniature of the new Jerusalem. A body, a functioning body where all the members function together. A bride, corporately, a people who are loving Christ and being loved by Him. A family, the family of God, and a body, and the house of God. Where living stones are being built together to form the dwelling of the Lord. And where heaven and earth meet, and the kingdom of God is expressed. Now, dear brothers and sisters, that's His eternal purpose. And it goes beyond salvation of lost souls, and it goes beyond making the world a better place. It is to have a corporate expression of Jesus Christ in every city on this planet. Well, Frank, I'm interested in that. What do I do? I'm going to be real honest with you. The house of God is built through conflict. Do you know those stones that were used to build the temple of Solomon? They were held together by friction. That means that each stone had to be cut and chiseled and chipped and sanded so that it fit perfectly with the other stones. I've just described to you what organic church life is. You get chiseled and cut and sanded. It's very transforming. But if you're not willing to die to yourself, brothers and sisters, it's not for you. Much easier, much safer to just trape yourself in a pew every Sunday morning. You don't have to deal with anybody. 
you know, accept fellowship with the person behind you. Hey, praise the Lord. How you doing? Great. Wonderful. We have fellowship. Sit down, listen to a sermon, throw money in a plate and go home. A lot easier. But to be in a community with other believers, to have a shared life with them, that's hard. But that's how the Lord gets His house. That's how a body of believers gets transformed into His image. God has an eternal purpose. It's been in His heart from the beginning. And your Bible is the story, the unfolding drama of that eternal purpose. And it all comes down to a bride for the Son, a house for the Father, a body for the Son, and a family for the Father, all through the Spirit. And that's the Spirit's job, is to make it all a reality. And the center point of all of it is the Lord Jesus Christ. To see Him expressed. For He's the bridegroom. He's the foundation of the house. As well as the capstone. He's the head of the body. He's the firstborn son of the family. Isn't that beautiful? Praise the Lord. Alright, stand up. If you enjoyed this message and would like to learn more about God's eternal purpose, you'll want to read the book From Eternity to Here by Frank Viola. You can find it online at frometernitytohere.org.